Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So tonight, I'm just letting you know, as I begin preparing the doctrine of sanctification, it's going to take us the next four weeks. So we're going to do a four-week series on sanctification because it is a lot more broad and it has a lot more aspects to it than like predestination or justification. So we're talking about the order of salvation. And we started all the way back with predestination. And we go back to Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we've looked at predestination. We've looked at calling, effectual calling. We've looked at regeneration. We've looked at faith and repentance, which is conversion. We've looked at justification, which means to be declared righteous before God. And then last week we looked at adoption. And so today we start this big topic, and it's not in Romans 8.30, the word sanctification, but the truth is all through the Bible. And so the question is, if you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, you're counted righteous before God, that gives you an excuse to go out and send your heart out, right? Because once saved, always saved. You got your free ticket to heaven. You can live however you want, right? Wrong. Okay, you're like, no, no, that's not right. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So we've been saved by grace to live for Jesus. Now, the best way to think about the difference between justification and sanctification is what the Reformers said. It's kind of a statement. Justification is Christ for us. He's for us. He saved us. He imputed His righteousness to us. Christ for us. Sanctification is, okay, Christ in us. We actually live out the Christian life. So I want to go back to justification because it's very important that we understand the distinction between justification and sanctification. Okay? Because there's some confusion, especially among Roman Catholic theology, even among some Protestants. If you get justification and sanctification mixed up or switched or confused, it can cause a lot of chaos in your Christian life. Okay? So let's talk about justification. This is just a review. We talked about this a few weeks ago. So justification involves our legal standing because of imputed righteousness. It is once for all time. It's, it's not repeatable. It's entirely God's work. God declares us to be righteous. It is perfected in this life. There are no degrees of justification. Once you are justified, you are justified. It's not a something that fluctuates. And it's the same for all Christians. Every single Christian who has faith in Christ is justified. There's no degrees of justification. There's no levels of justification. It's a once-for-all, unrepeatable, legal declaration whereby God looks at us and says, not guilty on account of Christ. Okay? It's a done deal. Sanctification, which was what we're going to talk about over the next four weeks, involves our internal condition, our hearts, 
are, it's a continuous struggle throughout life. It's continual. It's something that we cooperate with God. We have a part to play in it. It's not perfected in this life. You won't ever be fully progressively sanctified until you step foot into heaven. And there's a greater degree of sanctification in some and in others. There are some people that are more mature and more godly than others in their character and how they live. Not in their legal standing before God, not in their salvation because of justification, but in sanctification. So let's talk about what sanctification is. Now, this word may be a little bit kind of a big word, sanctification. It really means to set apart as holy. To set apart as holy. God sets us apart to be holy or more like Jesus. So let's talk about the need. Why why do we need to be sanctified? Why does this need to happen in our lives? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, God's people must be sanctified because God is holy. What does 1 Peter 1, 14-16 say? It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God is holy, and he calls us to be holy. Now, are we ever going to be as perfectly holy as God? No. But it is something that we should strive for in this life, as those who are believers. The other reason why we need to be sanctified is because we're born polluted by sin. We are born with the pollution of sin. Romans 3, 10-12 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's how we're born. So we are born polluted by the uncleanliness of of sin. And so when does sanctification begin? It's an interesting question. When does sanctification begin? Now I need to be very careful here. In just a moment I'm going to give you the two aspects of sanctification because there's two different ways to look at it. But really, the beginning of sanctification happens when God replaces our hearts of stone with new hearts. So you could say it this way, our sanctification begins in our regeneration when God makes us alive. And as a matter of fact, God makes this promise in the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel. What does God say he's going to do? And again, this is God speaking. So Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, this is God saying, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Sanctification happens when God takes out our heart of stone and gives us a new heart and puts the Holy Spirit in us. And notice what that passage says. The Holy Spirit in us will cause us to be able to obey will give us the power to be able to walk in God's way. So you are sanctified or cleansed or set apart as holy the moment that the Holy Spirit took out your heart of stone and gave you a heart of of flesh, the moment the Holy Spirit took up residence in you through regeneration. But sanctification also begins 
when you trust Jesus for salvation. 1 Corinthians 1, 30-31, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because we are in Christ, we have been sanctified. We've been justified, we've also been sanctified. We've been redeemed. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, He's talking about all these sins. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So when you placed your faith in Christ, you were sanctified, you were set apart as holy, you were cleansed, you were washed. But sanctification also involves an internal washing when God regenerated you by grace alone. This this internal washing. So Titus 3, 4-6, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So sanctification is this internal washing, cleansing, being set apart as holy the moment that God regenerated you. God set you apart when He made you a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, I want you to think about the Trinity here for a moment. Almost all aspects of our salvation, the Trinity works in concert, works in harmony, works together in unison to bring about the results that God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit want. But let's just think about sanctification for a moment regarding the Trinity and the three persons of the Trinity. So in 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2, we see the three persons of the Trinity. So Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those whom are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, okay, there's God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, there's the Holy Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, there's the Son, and for sprinkling with His blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So we are saved by the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But let's talk about sanctification for a moment. God the Father predestined us to be holy. You were predestined to be sanctified. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, for what reason? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. God predestined us, God the Father predestined us to be holy, to be sanctified, to be set apart. Okay? Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to what? He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that in order we might be the firstborn among many brothers. God predestined us to look like Jesus, to be more and more like Jesus, to be sanctified. 
And then God predestined that we would walk in holiness. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God the Father predestined us to be holy, predestined us to look like Jesus, predestined us to walk in good works and in holiness. That's God the Father. Jesus the Son has united us to himself for us to be holy. So when you become a Christian, you're united to Christ. You you have union with Christ. And we read this earlier, but let me read the whole passage. Romans 6, 1-4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There's a lot of stuff there I could unpack, but basically what Paul's saying is, When you became a Christian, your old life died like Jesus died. Your old life was buried like Jesus was buried. And like Jesus rose from the dead, you have a new life. And that new life you live is united to Christ. You're walking in newness of life. And then the Holy Spirit, and this is what we're going to really spend most of our time over the next four weeks, the Holy Spirit is really the, the person of the Trinity who works in us to be holy. The working of the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. So, is it working, Trina? Okay. But we're live now? Okay. You may just want to keep monitoring that. All right, so we can think of sanctification in two big categories. The first is positional. It refers to our position. Okay, we're permanently set apart as holy in our salvation. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has regenerated us. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. By the very nature of being a Christian, that's what a saint is. When Paul talks to the saints in in Colossae, the saints in Philippi, the, the saints. That just means holy ones. As a Christian, you are permanently set apart as a holy one because the Holy Spirit lives in you. You are positionally holy. But where we're going to spend all of our time over the next four weeks is the second aspect of sanctification, and that is progressive. This is what progressive sanctification means. This is kind of a definition. While we cannot lose our salvation we still struggle with sin. The Holy Spirit will progressively and continuously make us more holy and rid the pollution of sin in our lives. Okay, so if I had a whiteboard up here, I've drawn this graph before, but think about a graph here, okay? So down here, okay, down here is your salvation. Okay, and here's the graph. It goes like this. It's like a normal graph. Up here is heaven. Down here is your salvation. Is your path to heaven a straight line? A perfect obedience. Now, what does it look like? There's some ups and downs and peaks and valleys. 
two steps forward, five steps backwards. But if you were to chart the trajectory of your life, there's incremental growing to be more like Jesus. That's what we're talking about. Sanctification is an incremental, sometimes grueling process of you growing to be more and more holy and more and more like Jesus. Now, justification is not that. Justification is full. It's final. Your, your, standing, your legal standing before God is one of being accepted. It doesn't fluctuate. But your sanctification can fluctuate. Can you at times be more holy and more like Jesus and other times not? It depends on the sin in your life and how you, how you grow. Okay? So I want us to think about sanctification, some, some key elements of sanctification. What are the key elements of sanctification? You go back to the Baptist Catechism. It kind of gives a good definition. There's some good um, the, you know, systematic theologies that give definitions. But let me just kind of distill it down to kind of six big headings that define for us sanctification. So number one, it's a work of God's sovereign grace. It's not willpower. This is not something that you just grit your teeth and said, I'm going I'm to do this. It is God's sovereign grace in your life to get you to be more holy. You can't produce it on your own. Number two... You're first justified in the order of salvation. Okay, you are declared legally righteous through faith, and then comes the process. If you get the process before the position, let me just say it this way. This comes to assurance. This is not in your notes, but just popped into my head. Let's talk about assurance of your salvation. Assurance of your salvation is not how do you get saved, but how do you know you're saved. How do you know you're saved? If you base your assurance, how do I know I'm saved, on my sanctification and not your justification, why is that shaky ground? Because you're basing your salvation on how well you're doing. And what happens if you're not doing well? Well, I may not be saved. God must not love me. I must not have progressed enough to be holy enough. And so therefore, either I'm not in God's good graces or I'm going to lose out on my salvation because I don't know if I'm saved because it's up to me to keep going. We don't base our assurance on sanctification. We base our assurance on justification. What does justification say? No, it's a done deal. You're already accepted. You're already, you've got the righteousness of Christ. You are in a perfect standing. You're saved because God has declared you to be so based upon your faith in Christ. It's not based upon your progress or your sanctification. Number three, the Holy Spirit continues to renew your nature to be conformed to the image of Christ in varying degrees. The Holy Spirit renews your will, your mind, your emotions, even your body, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And it, it's in varying degrees. And we're gonna, I'm going to unpack all this over the next four weeks. I'm just giving you kind of an overview. Number four, we are empowered more and more to kill sin in our lives. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight is killing sin. Not wounding it, but killing it. Number five, we're empowered to do good works. Remember that Ephesians 2.10, God has prepared beforehand that we walk in good works. We're His workmanship created to do good works. And then number six, we're, we're empowered to obey God's law. 
We don't throw out God's law. We don't throw out the Ten Commandments. We need to have a proper understanding of God's law and our relation to that as Christians. Now, I'm going to give you a quote by Michael Horton. Michael Horton is a professor of of theology at Westminster Seminary in California. Um, He's got a podcast called The White Horse Inn. I've been listening to that for about 20 years now. One of my favorite modern-day theologians. Um, He wrote this. When most people think Where most people think that the goal of religion is to get people to become something that they are not, the scriptures call believers to become more and more what they already are in Christ. You see the difference? Religion gets you to become something you're not. Be a better person. The Bible says, no, you already are saved. Now just become more and more who you already are. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Now live in the reality of that. So over the next four weeks, we're going to do ten teachings. So we're going to do two tonight, I think two next week, and, and I've broken it up by week. But let me, let me show you where we're going, okay? So these are the ten topics. I'm giving you the next four weeks the topics we're talking about. So it, it'll whet your appetite if you want to come back. Okay, so the first two we're going to talk about tonight. So number one Sanctification involves a lifelong struggle. The key word there being struggle with indwelling sin. A lifelong struggle. Number two, sanctification involves constantly killing sin in our lives. Those are the two we're going to look at tonight. And we're going to look at two major passages of Scripture. Okay, number three, sanctification involves the Holy Spirit transforming us at different levels of growth. We don't all grow the same way. There's different levels. It's different for each person. Number four, sanctification involves displaying the fruit of the Spirit. How do you know you're growing in Christ? You're displaying the fruit of the Spirit. That's good evidence. Number five, sanctification involves a joint partnership between us and the Spirit. We'll talk about that when we get there, but you did not elect yourself. You did not predestine yourself. You did not choose yourself. You did not call yourself. You did not justify yourself. You did not adopt yourself. God did all that. But in sanctification, you have a partnership to play in the role. It's a a joint effort. Number six, Sanctification involves a putting off of sin and a putting on of Christ. Paul and Peter both use this metaphor of taking off of clothing, taking off the old and putting on the new. Sanctification involves grace-empowered effort. We don't want to be afraid of the word effort. It requires effort, but it's grace-empowered effort. Number eight, sanctification involves obedience to God's law as a rule for living. We'll talk about the role of the law in the life of a Christian. Number nine, God has given us means of grace to help in our sanctification. How do you grow? Bible reading, prayer, scripture memory, Lord's Supper, fellowship, all those things being part of a church family. And then number ten, the doctrine of sanctification has been misunderstood and abused throughout church history. We're going to look at some abuses and some extremes and some erroneous views of what other groups teach on sanctification. Okay, so that's where we're going. So tonight, we're going to look at the first two. So, 
Tonight, topic number one is this. Sanctification involves a lifelong struggle with indwelling sin. Have you ever thought about this question? When God saved you, why didn't he just get the sin out of your life? I don't have an answer for that. The answer is that's because that's what God did. The point is this. When you became a Christian, the power of sin was broken. The penalty of sin was broken. You're no longer under the power of sin. You're no longer under the penalty of sin, but you still have to deal with the pollution of sin. Would you agree? The presence of sin. Even though you're regenerated, you're sanctified, you're justified, you still have remaining sin in your life that you've got to deal with. Sometimes it's called the flesh, indwelling sin. It's a lifelong struggle. And Paul mentioned this struggle in Romans chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Anybody ever been there before? I really want to do good. I really want to obey. I really want to walk in Christ, but I I find this inside me where I just fail, and I don't do what I'm supposed to do. So, if you have your Bibles tonight, we're finally going to get to actually opening up a scripture. Galatians chapter 5. So turn to Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to start in verse 13 and go through verse 18. And this is in the conversation about being led by the Spirit and kind of setting up for the fruit of the Spirit. But I want us to start in verse 13. Everybody there? Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. But I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And this is the key passage, verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. We've been freed in Christ. Christ has won the victory. We are declared righteous by Christ. We've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We've been saved by grace alone. We are in a permanent position of being sanctified. Yet, there's a struggle. And the first thing we see in this passage is the command to holiness. Now, where do I see that? Well, it doesn't just come right out and say, be holy. But what does verse 16 say? I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay, what does it mean to gratify the desires of the flesh? That means to give in to sin. 
So Paul is here saying positively, walk by the Spirit. Live a life under the control of the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit guide your life. And in doing so, don't give in to temptation. Don't let sin overtake your life. Don't bring gratification through the flesh. Don't give in to these desires. So the role of the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to help us not to sin. To walk by the Spirit. Now, 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We often don't think about, what, what does our flesh want to do? Our flesh wants to sin, because it's fun. I don't like the constraints. I don't want the, all these things on me. I want to do what I want to do. I want to pursue pleasure. I want to pursue instant gratification. I want to pursue the lust of my, of my flesh. I want to be free. I don't want constraints. That's kind of what the world says, right? I want to be free. Nobody tells me what to do. Well, did you see that passage of Scripture where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom? So this is counterintuitive. If you want to walk in true freedom, you walk according to the Holy Spirit and you walk in holiness. If you want to truly be free and live in that freedom, you walk according to the Holy Spirit. You walk in holiness. So this is not up for debate. For the Christian, it's not something you can take or leave and say, well, you know, this is maybe something I'll get around to. Now, these are commands. Walk by the Spirit. Be holy because I'm holy. Don't gratify the desires of the flesh. It's a command. So we are commanded to walk in holiness. But here's the problem. And Paul addresses this problem in verse 17. This is the problem. We know we're supposed to walk in holiness. We know we're supposed to obey. We know we're supposed to do good works and live for Christ. But there's a struggle. There's a battle. Look at verse 17. For the desires of the flesh. Now, when, when Paul says flesh there, he's not talking about just like your flesh and blood. Flesh means your sin. The sin that you still have in you. Even though you're regenerated, even though you have newness of Christ and you're new in Christ, you still have remaining sin. You'll never get rid of that sin until the day you step foot into heaven. And the desires, you still have desires, ungodly desires. And that word, desires, it really, in the original language, really means over-desires, controlling desires lustful, craving desires. Now, these don't necessarily have to be sexual in nature. Paul doesn't say sexual immorality. He doesn't use the word, Greek word porneia. He uses the word desires here. So these can be any type of craving or desire or lust that you pursue that's sinful. And the way it's worded in the original language is like, it's almost like on overdrive. An over desire that is inordinate that's ungodly and so what happens look at your look at your bible look at verse 17 what does paul say these over desires these controlling desires in your flesh they're against who the spirit where does the holy spirit live inside of you where does your remaining sin still live 
inside of you. The desires of the Spirit are against those of the flesh, for they're opposed. They're opposed to one another. They're at war. So there's an intense, ongoing battle in the heart of every Christian between the desires of the Holy Spirit and the desires of your flesh. Now, there are only two types of people in this world. There's no in-between category. So let me give you the two. There are only two types of people in this world. Those who are saved and those who are not saved. Is there a third category? You're either regenerate, saved, justified, or you're unregenerate, dead in your sins, and lost. And Romans 8 says those who are in the flesh unsaved, unregenerate. If you're unsaved, you're in the flesh, you cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you are truly a Christian. So, I'm going to say something here that you may at first disagree with, but let me, let me unpack it. Non-Christians do not struggle with sin. And let me say it again. Non-Christians do not struggle with sin. Now, do non-Christians sin? Yes. Do non-Christians get bothered by sin from time to time? Yes. We all have a conscience. Do non-Christians, could their conscience bother them that they sinned? Yes. Could they worry that they got caught? Could they worry that they're having to deal with the consequences? Yes. Now, why do I say non-Christians don't struggle with sin? It's not a struggle because who do they not have living in them? They don't have the Holy Spirit. So there's no battle between the Holy Spirit and the flesh and a non-Christian, because a non-Christian doesn't have the Holy Spirit. They're dominated by the flesh. They're just doing what they want to do. There's no battle. So when you were in your sinful nature, who was on the throne of your life? You. When you become a Christian, who comes and takes up residence as king of your life? The Holy Spirit. And sometimes our old flesh wants to kick him off the throne. <laughs> and do things ourselves, And there is an intense battle. So here's the, here's the point. You will always have an impulse to sin because of the remaining flesh in you that's not been totally eradicated. This impulse or craving or desire, it doesn't rule you. It doesn't dominate you. It doesn't enslave you like it did before your salvation. But this remaining sin can still exert a tremendous influence in this internal battle. We need to understand that very clearly. No true Christian can say this. Well, I couldn't help it. That's just the way I am. No, you chose to give in to sin. But are you enslaved to sin if you're a Christian? No. Are you under its dominating power as a Christian? No. Are you under its rule? No. Is it still there? Yes. Can it exert influence in your life? Yes. Can you choose to say no to it? Yes. 
as a non-Christian, you couldn't choose to say no to it because, I mean, you could say no through willpower or through peer pressure, but you didn't have the Holy Spirit in you giving you the grace to be able to say no to sin. Now, here's something that's even more scary. If there is no intense battle with sin, maybe you're not a Christian. Have you thought about it that way? If you're comfortable with sin and you're not bothered by sin and you're not convicted of sin, then maybe you're not, maybe you don't have the Holy Spirit. I don't know. But here's the good news this struggle with sin proves that you're actually a Christian. Maybe you've been told growing up that if you struggle with sin, you better question your salvation. If you ever struggle with sin, maybe you're not saved. Maybe you weren't justified because no good Christian would ever struggle with sin. Now that person is probably lying to you because what are they doing? They probably struggle with sin too. There's some type of legalistic culture in churches where you're never allowed to talk about struggling with sin as if everybody's supposed to be perfect all the time. Now, what does Paul say right here? Does Paul allow us to say that? Does Paul say it's a struggle? Yes. Does he say it's a battle? Yes. So here's the good news, whether you like it or not. It may not be good news. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I got ahead of myself. The word are opposed. That's in the present tense, which shows that this is a present ongoing reality in the life of a believer. They're always opposed. Your flesh and the spirit are always opposed. It's a, it's a lifelong battle. But here's the, here's the good news. This intense and internal battle with sin is one of the clearest evidences that you are actually saved. Okay, that may sound counterintuitive. Let me say it this way. If you sin and you're bothered by your sin and you're convicted of that sin and you're heartbroken over that sin, that's probably evidence that you're truly saved. Let me give you an example. Okay, let's say that um, a woman comes in, or let's say a man comes, let's say a woman cheats on her husband and she comes into my office and she basically says hey my husband caught me cheating he wants me to come talk to the pastor so I'm here to talk to you um, and I start talking to the lady and I'm like well do you have any desire to repent do you have any desire to get back with your husband do you have any desire to to reconcile no well do you feel broken no actually I, I love the guy that God God brought into my life and I feel like it's a God thing because we're so compatible and um, I feel so much closer to God now that I have this new man in my life. So you don't feel any remorse. You don't feel any sense that what you've done is wrong. You're not broken about it at all. You're not struggling with this adultery at all. No, as a matter of fact, I feel at peace with God because I, this is just, I want to be happy and this is what God's done with me to, give, to make me happy. Okay, that's, that's woman number one. Okay. Woman number two comes to my office and she's like, my husband caught me with an affair. It was a one-time thing. I'm broken. I'm repentant. I'm contrite. I know I'm sinned. Um, help me. I want to reconcile with my husband. We need marriage counseling. I feel broken. I feel totally convicted, and, and I know I need Jesus. Now, I can't look into the heart of either one of those ladies, but by their words, what's the difference between the second lady and the first lady? What's the one thing that's the, the same about both of them? Did they both sin? They both committed adultery, right? What's the attitude of the first person? I could care less. 
What's the attitude of the second person? I'm broken and contrite. Now, I can't look at their heart to see if they're truly a Christian, but what I can say is probably the second person is probably a Christian because it bothered her, and she wants to repent and wants to move forward. The first lady, there's no battle. There's no, intent, there's no struggle. It's, she's, she's come to peace with her sin. So only Christians struggle with sin. Non-Christians sin, but they don't struggle with it in the way that Christians do because they don't have the Holy Spirit living in them. It's not an intense battle. It's actually their nature to sin, and they can't not sin. We can choose not to sin as Christians. So it's very important. There's a practical application about this. We we need to be very realistic with each other about the struggle. We've got to be careful that we don't judge others, walk in arrogance, and have this attitude that I've arrived and I will never struggle. I remember turning the channels one time, and I don't ever recommend doing this, on, I think it was TBN or one of the Christian broadcasting, it was like maybe 10, 15 years ago, and I'm like, why am I watching this? This is a royal waste of time. But there was this televangelist, and he was basically preaching, and he basically said, I've gotten to the point where I just don't sin anymore. Devil doesn't bother me anymore. Devil comes around, I say, devil, get out of here. I'm not, I don't sin anymore. And then he started like chiding the congregation, like, if you guys sin then you, just, you haven't arrived the way I've arrived because i just at the point where I don't sin anymore. And I thought, whoa, that's a very dangerous place to be because 1 John says if we say we have sin, we're a liar. Or if we don't sin, we're a liar. And so don't ever think that you can't fall or you can't sin or you, don't, you won't struggle. Now, some of us will struggle to different degrees, but 1 Corinthians tells us 1 Corinthians 10, 12-13, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So, the first thing we see about sanctification is the realistic aspect of it. The Holy Spirit lives in you but you still have remaining sin in you until the day you die, it's going to be a constant battle. You're always going to be struggling with sin. Sometimes you're going to be on a path of more holiness. Other times you may be on a path of less holiness. Again, it fluctuates. But your flesh in you is going to rise up and be opposed to the Holy Spirit in you. Which leads us to the second thing that we're going to look at tonight the need to be constantly killing sin in our lives. There's a book that came out called In Between a Rock and a Hard Place. It's about a a mountain climber named Aaron Ralston. Um, There's a film that came out about it called 172 Hours. I don't know if you remember that. But back in 2003, uh, he was hiking in Utah. And he got pinned between a canyon wall where his arm got stuck. And, and he got dehydrated, and he actually started hallucinating. And he, he basically had like a really bl- dull pocket knife. And the only way he could survive was to cut off his own arm. So he cut off his own arm with a dull pocket knife type thing 
so he wouldn't starve to death and be like food for vultures in, in this rock, between a rock and a hard place. Self-amputation. He needed to cut off his arm in order to live. Which sounds very similar to what Jesus says in Mark 9, 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Now, is Jesus literally telling us to cut off our limbs? No, because every single one of us would be without hands and feet. And I mean, if, if, it's a very shocking word picture way, very emphatic way for Jesus to hyperbolically or exaggerated tell us the danger of sin. Sin is so insidious, so pervasive, so strong, it has to be met with some drastic measures. Jesus says, cut, it, cut off your arm. Poke your eye out. Now, let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and we're just going to look at one verse. This is the famous passage of verse, passage of Scripture that talks about killing sin, or as the old Puritans called it, mortification of sin. And I'm going to use that term, that old term, mortification. Romans 8.13. Is everybody there? All right. Paul writes, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let's ask four questions of this passage of Scripture. Four questions. Here's the first question. What does Paul mean when he says, if you live according to the flesh? What's the result if you live according to the flesh? You will die. What does it mean to live according to the flesh? Now, Paul uses what we call a present active verb which denotes continuous action. So what he's saying here is if your lifestyle, if your habitual lifestyle is constantly that of giving in to your flesh, giving in to sin, if it's, if it's the totality of who you are, the end result will be spiritual death. So I think Paul is talking about an unsaved person here. Can a Christian live according to the flesh in the sense that you're, you're always living for the flesh. No. He's giving a warning here. If you are an unsaved person, you, the totality of your life is always going to be living for your flesh, and it will result in spiritual death. Now, as Christians, we still will sin. But we don't live according to the flesh. 
We, we are led by the Spirit. We are sons and daughters of God. We are regenerated. We have new affections. We have new desires. We ultimately don't live a lifestyle according to the flesh as Christians. We are saints, been set apart, who do struggle with sin, but we don't, our lifestyle is not living according to the flesh. So living according to the flesh is, is, is described as a non-believer whose total lifestyle is that of sin. And, and the end result of that is, what's the wages of sin? Paul says earlier, the wages of sin is death. Here he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Okay, second question. What are the deeds of the body? Because Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, is Paul only, specifically, exclusively, talking about things you do outwardly with your body parts? Like with your eyes, your ears? Not necessarily. I think if you follow Paul's flow of thought all the way back to chapter 6 through 8, the deeds of the body, I think, can be anything related to your flesh. So the deeds of body can be internal sins of the heart. So internal sins could be things like lust or greed or impatience or an unforgiving spirit. But they can also be external sins that we commit with our body, such as lying or murder or theft or adultery. You remember how Jesus said, you've heard it said... Do not commit adultery. But I say if you look with a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. What's the outward deed of the body? Physical adultery. What's the internal sin without doing the actual deed? Lust. So the deeds of the body here, I think Paul is saying, is anything that is a sinful lust that's either in your heart, your mind, your imagination, or you actually act upon. And you get some evidence from this in Colossians. So Colossians 3, 5-8. through 8. Put to death... There's the same wording we see in Romans. Put to death, therefore, whatever's earthly in you. Now here he, he calls whatever's earthly in you. In Romans, he called it deeds of the body. How does he describe it in Colossians here? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God's coming. In these you once walked when you were living in them, but you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. If you look at that list, do you see internal and external sins? Some are sins of attitude, some are sins of external. So, if you are an unregenerate non-Christian, your lifestyle is that of living according to the flesh, and you will die in your sins. Second thing, what are the deeds of the body that we're supposed to kill? This is any type of sin internally, a lust, a desire, a hateful thought, impatience to words, deeds, and actions. So thought, words, and deeds. Okay, let's ask the third big question where we're going to spend a lot of time. Paul says, put to death or kill. Put to death. So let's ask the third question. What does it look like to actually kill sin? Notice the wording there. But if by the Spirit you put to death. The King James Version uses the term mortify. To mortify. The word that Paul uses here means to assassinate or to put to death by execution. It is a violent term 
of actually forcefully dealing with sin. Notice he says, don't put it to sleep. Don't hinder it. Don't wound it. Don't injure it. What does he say? Kill it. Put sin to death. Now, Paul uses a present tense verbing in here, which would be translated this way. Keep on continually putting sin to death. Which means what? It goes back to what we talked about before. It's always going to be a constant battle. You put the sin, you can't just put sin to death once and then think you're done. What's going to happen? It's going to come again. It's going to come again. So this putting to death sin is happening all the time. John Owen, the famous Puritan um, who wrote Mortification of Sin, said, you must be killing sin or it will be killing you. So you've got to be alert because sin's always going to come at you. What did Jesus say to his disciples in Matthew 26, 40-41? He came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch. Be on guard against sin because it will come like a ruthless enemy. It's a tricky foe. It will sneak up on you. Let me ask you a question. How many of you, watched, how many of you didn't watch the halftime show at the Super Bowl? I, I didn't watch it because I don't care about Rihanna and I usually don't watch the halftime shows. But halftime in a basketball game, halftime in a, in a football game, what's the purpose of halftime? It's to go in and take a rest, <laughs> to get off the field of play, to take a break, and to kind of regroup before you go back out and fight the battle. And the Super Bowl gives you longer halftime. And so one of the reasons why I think Kansas City won is because Andy Reid had more time during halftime to put some schemes together to go back out there and have a better offense against Philadelphia's defense. That's a totally different discussion. But let me ask you a question. Does Satan ever take a halftime break? No. Does sin ever take a halftime break? Does sin ever sleep? No, it's always going to be coming at you. So you've always got to be alert. Now, one caution I want to issue before we start talking about mortification or killing sin is this. Ultimate mortification or ultimate death of sin is never going to occur in this life. You will never have total victory over sin. This total victory over sin should never be an expected part of progressive sanctification. And we'll talk about this later. Some groups believe you can have total victory over all known sin. Perhaps for a period, but the moment that you think you have victory over one sin, what can another sin do? It can come and... So are, you're killing a bunch of different sins. Because you may kill a sin over here and another sin comes up over here. So the point is to be killing sin, but you have to realize you're never going to fully kill it until you get to heaven. It's the goal. It's the aim. But the the moment you get to the point where you think you're no longer going to struggle or you don't need to kill sin is the moment that you take your, your eyes off the ball. And I, I said this earlier, but let me just actually read it. 1 John 1, 1.8, if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So what 
does it mean to kill sin? Well, let me actually, it may be helpful to describe what it's not before we talk about what it is. Sometimes it's helpful to say, here's, here's what it is not, and here's what it is. Okay. I want you just to think about the word. What images come to your mind when you hear the word kill? like the old Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I'm not dead yet. I mean, he's still fighting out there. And he, I mean, he, he's, his arms have been chopped off, but he, he wasn't totally dead. So, let's talk about what mortification is not, what killing sin is not. First of all, mortification or killing sin is not just a cosmetic makeover of your sin, okay? Here's what often happens when we try to deal with sin. The Bible often speaks of root sins and fruit sins. Now what do I mean by root sins and fruit sins? Root sins are those sins that are deep in us that are hidden that we sometimes don't see. Those are more the thoughts, the attitudes, the lust, the anger, the selfishness, the idolatry. That's really where the issue is. And it comes out in fruit. It comes out in the action. So when we deal with sin, oftentimes we deal with the fruit and not the root. It's just like your weeds. How do you kill weeds in the summertime? Don't you wish you had to deal with weeds right now? It says shoveling snow. I don't want to deal with weeds either. Or shoveling snow. What do you have to do with weeds? You have to get down to the the root. So if a tree's dead, let's say that there's an apple tree in my backyard and the apple tree's dead. But I want to go out there and I want to make sure that it, it looks good for my wife because she wants apples and maybe the neighbors look over the fence. and like So I go out there and, and I buy some plastic apples you know, from the store and I start stapling plastic apples on the apple tree to make it look good. And my wife's like, what in the world are you doing stapling plastic apples on an apple tree? Well, I'm trying to make it look better. I'm trying to deal with it so it doesn't, so we don't have rotten apples. Well, what's the point? What's the only way you're ever going to get good apples? You have to get down the root. Either you either cut the tree out and start over, or you go down and do some serious work. But all I was doing, I was doing window dressing. I was trying to make it look better. And so there's a lot of times when we deal with sin, we simply get to the fruit and we don't get to the root. So many attempts to manage sin only deal with the fruit sins behavior modification they don't get down to the root sense they don't get down to the depth of the problem so oftentimes when i do pastoral counseling with people and and they're dealing with an issue or or maybe a couple comes in and or or a family comes in and there's an issue what i always want to do in my counseling pastoral counseling is i want to get to the root issue because what they're dealing with is probably more the fruit the outward stuff but I want to get down to the root because until you start dealing with the root, you really can't deal with sin. And the problem is, is that a lot of times we're blinded to what those root sins are. So to kill sin, it's not just a cosmetic makeover. You've got to get down to the root. Okay? That's, that's not, killing sin is not just doing window dressing and, and dealing with externals. You've got to get down to the root. Secondly, you can't ignore it. 
and hope it goes away. I mean, that, that, that's hazardous. That does not describe this process of ki- killing sin does not mean I just ignore it and hope it goes away. I've got this problem and, you know, it, it'll just go away if I just ignore it. Or if I just try really hard not to do this, I won't deal with it. I just, I'll ignore it. I'll, I'll, I'll stuff it. Is killing sin stuffing it or ignoring it? No. You've got to face it head on as the enemy that it is, and you've got to kill it. Third, occasional attempts will not successfully work. I, you know, I killed sin for a little while, and then I just kind of, you know, that's just the way I am. That's the way I was born. If somebody else did this to me, I'm just a victim. You've got all these excuses to where you just kind of give up and just accept that, that you're always going to be struggling with this sin and you don't, you don't even think about it. So what is killing sin? Let me give you five key aspects of killing sin that will help us what it means to understand what it means to put sin to death. First, you really need to have a seething hatred for sin and see it as the enemy it truly is. You're not going to kill something if you like it, if you're in love with it, if it makes you feel good. Why would you kill it? What's the opposite? You want to nurse it. You want to protect it, right? So we're deceived into looking at sin as something that makes me feel good. It, it, it helps me, encourages me, it, it strengthens me. Whatever words you want to use, you don't see it as something that's going to kill you or something that's, that needs to be killed. So before you kill sin, you've got to see it as something worth killing. This is something I need to get rid of in my life. Romans 12.9 says, Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. What does the word abhor mean? Hate. You've got to hate sin. You're only going to kill what you hate. I know this is kind of weird language, like killing, but that's the word Paul uses, kill it. You're only, and he says hate sin. You're only going to kill what you hate. So unless you start to begin to hate your sin, you will never kill it. Second, you need to think about the guilt and the corruption of sin. You need to see it for all of its ugliness. You need to really see how bad it is. What does sin often do to us? It fools us, right? It looks all bright and shiny, like the tree of knowledge and good and evil. What does the Bible say? Eve saw that it was pleasant to the eyes, it looked appealing but she knew she wasn't supposed to touch it. But she went ahead and ate. Listen to this metaphor, this imagery that Job gives in Job 20, 12-14. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach, it is a venom of cobras within him. Okay, what's, what's he talking about? Here's the picture. Okay, this is going to be really gross, so hang with me. It's a piece of chocolate that you put in your mouth. And at first, it tastes so sweet. It's the best chocolate you've ever had. You let it linger in your mouth. 
And then you realize after a while it's chocolate-covered dog manure. What do you do? You spit it out because it's making you sick to your stomach. But at first, what was it? It was so tasty. But what really was it? So you were thinking about the sweetness of that sin, Job's saying, but when you got it in your mouth and you, you kind of sucked on a little bit, it made you want to throw up. So instead of focusing on the sweetness of sin, see how corrupting it really is. So number one, you've got to hate sin. Number two, you've got to see sin for what it is. It is corrupting. It is gross. It is corrosive. Third, killing sin involves examining the shock and danger of sin. You need to remind yourself of how you gave in to sin in the past. You need a healthy dose of the danger of sin. You, you need to clearly think about how we were damaged in the past when we did not kill sin. And then you need to turn and think about the overwhelming consequences of what might happen if you plunge headward into sin. Part of killing sin is saying, what, how did this sin hurt me in the past, and if I give in to it, how is it going to hurt me and others in the future? What are the grave consequences of this if I give in to it? How has it hurt me and others in the past? Ooh, I, I need to be shocked by that. I need to be... I need to be woken up to that. What are the consequences if I give in to it? So killing sin, and so this is like really heart work. Do you hate sin? Do you see sin for how corrupting it is? Do you, are you shocked by what sin does, the consequences of sin? Fourth, one of the ways you kill sin is you must be intimate with your particular areas of weakness. And you need to avoid those areas or situations where you would be vulnerable. It's different for every person. What are your areas of weakness? What, what times, at what places, and what situations are you the most weak? Avoid those the best that you can. So, for example, Proverbs 5, 3-8. For the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she's bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life, her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O son, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. <laughs> Notice what the dad or the, or the father says. Son, don't even go near her house. Don't go near the prostitute. Don't go near the alluring woman. She's going to be out there. She's going to be tantalizing you and tempting you. And she knows your areas of weakness and she's going to be sweet talking you. Don't even walk by her house. Don't even be in a situation where you're going to be tempted with that. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says, Abstain from every form of evil. Okay, ultimately, here's the fifth thing. Killing sin is really what we, could, what we call gospel repentance. Gospel repentance. So let's kind of go through this, this process. You hate sin. You are shocked by the corruption of sin. 
you think about the consequences of sin and how harmful sin is, you avoid sin. And then as you say no to sin, over time, you're slowly killing that sin. It's being weakened in your life and you're having greater desires towards Jesus. So through repentance, through this process, you're weakening sin. Now, you're not ultimately killing it. That's the goal, but you're weakening it. And and it could be a slow, painful process, but then you begin to make progress. And then you become more godly, and sin becomes weaker and weaker. So, The command here is to put to death sin. But there's one very, very, very important aspect of this that if you don't include this final question, all of this is in vain. So you guys tell me. Read Romans 8, 13 again. Did you see it? If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's the most important part of this. The fourth question is, okay, what role does the Holy Spirit play in killing sin? Now here's where the cooperative effort comes in, and we'll talk about this as we go through. The command here is for you to put to death sin. Does it say the Holy Spirit puts it to death? No, it says you put to death sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you must trust in, rely upon, ask for the grace of the Holy Spirit. So if there's going to be any killing of sin, if there's going to be any dealing with sin, if there's going to be any weakening of sin, it's got to be that the Holy Spirit does it. So in His sovereignty, the Holy Spirit alone does the work of killing sin. At the end of the day, all the credit for any spiritual transformation or growth in grace comes from the sovereign spirit of God. We need to rely upon Him. We are responsible to put to death sin, but we do it by the Spirit. It's not willpower. It's not self-effort. It's not New Year's resolutions. It's not, you know... Grinning and you know, gritting your teeth. It's it's not anything that you do in your self-effort. You daily, moment by moment, have to ask the Holy Spirit, Spirit of the Living God, would you please grant me the power to say no to sin? Will you help Holy Spirit, will you help me to hate sin? Hate my sin. Will you help me to see sin for what it really is? Will you help me to avoid these areas? Will you help me say no to temptation? Holy Spirit, I need your help to kill sin. And so at the end of the day, if any sin is killed, it's the Spirit doing it in you. You do it by the Spirit. Now we get help from the Spirit, but we're still responsible for killing sin. Okay, does anybody know what autotomy is? scientific term that describes self-amputation by lizards and geckos. You ever seen those? You cut a tail off of a gecko or a lizard, you amputate the tail, what happens? It grows back. So autotomy is this idea that if you cut something off, it grows back. It regenerates itself. It's like geckos and salamanders 
they'll shed part of their tail um, when they're captured. As believers, we are called to practice autotomy, the cutting off. You need to amputate sin, kill sin whenever it rears its ugly head. And just like the tail of that gecko that regenerates and comes back, when you kill sin, what's it going to do? It's going to come back. So it's a constant autotomy. (laughs) It's a constant killing. It's a constant amputating of that sin. Now remember how we started this discussion. What What did Jesus say? If your hand caused you to sin, what? Cut it off. Many times we focus so much on the hyperbole. That's not real. Jesus didn't really mean to cut off your hands. We focus so much on trying to say, that's not really what he meant, that we lose the shock of what Jesus is really saying. Sin is a ruthless enemy that never sleeps, never takes a halftime break, constantly attacks us. It manipulates us. It deceives us. And if it's not weakened or eventually killed, it will lead a non-believer straight to hell. But for the believer, it will impede our growth and godliness. We will not be conformed to the image of Christ the way that we could be if we don't kill sin. So instead of standing back and thinking about what Jesus doesn't mean, doesn't really mean to cut off your hand, doesn't really mean to poke out your eye, that's just exaggeration. Let's just read it for what it's meant to do. It's supposed to shock us. So let's just read it again. What did Jesus say in Mark 9, 43? If your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled with two hands than to go to hell to unquenchable fire. So sanctification is this lifelong process of battling sin, killing sin, dealing with sin, but thanks be to God, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not left to our own devices. It's not self-effort. It is grace. You're saved by grace, and you continue in grace. It's not like you're saved by grace and the rest of your life is self-effort. You're saved by grace, and then God's grace continues to help you grow. It's all of grace. Now, in sanctification, you have a responsibility. You have to put forth some effort, and we'll talk about that. There's some things that you and I are responsible to do, like killing sin and doing battle with sin, but ultimately the Holy Spirit's the one that ultimately wins the battle. So really, sanctification is about relying upon the power of the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit, so that you can become more like Jesus. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have tonight. And Lord, help us to remember that we are called to kill sin, but we do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we need you desperately. We need to be led by you. We need to walk according to your, to your ways. We need your power in our lives. Lord, help us to hate sin. Help us to see sin for what it is. Help us to um, avoid temptation and areas of temptation. Help us to cry out to you for help. And help us to remember that um, even when we fail, we're still your child and we're accepted because we're justified freely in our position and our standing. And let that give us assurance of our salvation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.